Shut up and sit down. Welcome back to Mad Get Radio, episode 41, if you can believe it. This is the show where we chat shit about Ninth Age and interview some interesting dudes in the hobby, which is funny, because on tonight's show we are joined by the former wielder of the Banhammer on the Ninth Age forums and a member of the shadowy executive board. Joining us from sunny California at ridiculous o'clock in the morning, it's Grimble Blackhammer. How are you doing, man? Just another day, living the dream. Awesome, awesome. That's what we love, positivity. And as always, I am joined by the Garth to my Wayne. It's Paul. How's it going, buddy? Yay, I got the uh, duo this week. Nice. Yay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, man. We're uh, we're back to playing physical games as of yesterday, so it's all very exciting. Yeah, Paul has uh, got a spring in his step because he kicked Martin in the face yesterday. Not, not literally. Not literally. Not literally. Yeah. Although that wouldn't be difficult. He's not the most well-endowed fellow when it comes to height. Well endowed fellow. <laughs> That's in the podcast for um, So on tonight's show, we're very lucky to be joined by uh, Grim to come and chat with us for a little while. Um, and we're going to be talking about all kinds of things ranging from Grim's uh, backdrop uh, or background rather uh, on the Ninth Age project and things like the US tournament scene, which on the last episode we had a go at. So he's here to defend it. Um, but first, Ooh. yeah, it's, that the episode hasn't been released yet, so you don't even know what we said. Um, <laughs> so, Grim, for anyone that doesn't know, who are you? I am one of the suckers that made the mistake of saying yes. I would like to be part of the executive board. <laughs> um, I started out as a volunteer. Uh, I don't even know how many years ago. Four years ago, maybe. And uh, I said to the ever well-known blonde beer hey i've got some spare time if you guys ever need somebody to help out just let me know and uh they recruited me for the moderating team and then the head moderator left and then they moved me onto the executive board or the uh, advisory board and then uh eventually they moved me onto the executive board so now i get to sit in the ivory tower and look down upon the, the the lands and uh Rejoice in my magnificence. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean the the mod team. That's uh, that's a that's some gig. What made you want to do that? I didn't. Uh, It was just (laughs) what they asked me to do, and I said sure. Um, It is the hardest job I have ever had. Is unbelievable how many people say ridiculous things. It's people can just be absolutely stunningly cruel on the forums and they probably I, I don't even know how many posts they have to delete these days people calling each other nazis and 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 outright swearing by changing one letter and their job sucks it's so hard i don't miss it at all Price to say sorry if that's any consolation it's not gonna stop <laughs> doing it, but the good news is the guys on that team are probably some of the nicest, kindest people you will ever meet. So if you ever do have a problem, you can always go to them and they're totally willing to help you. I don't know how they don't get burned out by all the stuff they have to deal with, though. 
So um, what kind of armies do you play? Um, are you kind of a one-army man, or do you, you flitter about? Well, I started off in, um, as, as I think you guys did back in uh, good old Warhammer Fantasy. Back Paul, in- was, Paul, Paul was a, a Ninth Age baby. Really? Yeah, yeah. no, I, I wanted to be a, a cool kid and play Warhammer, but then by the time <laughs> I actually got back to it, it was no longer a thing. So I, oh. I came across Ninth Age that way. Oh, okay. I started back in 6th edition. Um, Battle for Skull Pass had just been released. And the next month, they um, Wood Elves got the Tree Men, and everyone was complaining at how it completely broke Warhammer. See, Martin, you've had your time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's how far back I go. But um, I, I was playing uh, Dark Elves back then. Uh, I played Dread Elves when I first started the Ninth Age. And then I migrated over to the Infernal Dwarves, who are the greatest army ever. Yes. And they're with their overpoweredness. Yeah. Uh, but I, I play those for fun. Um, my competitive army is the army that puts the FU in fun, and that would be Warriors of the Dark Gods. <laughs> I play a critical role in the Ninth Age tournament scene, typically. I'm the half that makes the top half possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I started playing Warriors of the Dark Gods, and last year I was undefeated. This year, I've won all my games except my first game against the Dreadolf book, the new Dreadolf book, and I might have mildly misjudged uh, their potency because I got 20. And um, uh, last week I just played a, a very, very nasty um, Warriors list, and that one I actually drew against. That's my first draw with my with my new Warriors list. Tell, you've got to tell us what's in the list now. It's... Uh... It's world-destroying. It is. Um, <laughs> you know, back when I was a moderator, once Bitten360, a name that I think we all know and love, mm-hmm. he was actually helping design the book. And he suggested, as a replacement for the uh, Hell Cannon's shooting ability, hey, let's make this thing that teleports units around. And I thought, teleporting units of Chosen into the backfield? That doesn't sound good. <laughs> But lo and behold, I have proved myself correct. Uh, <laughs> Ten Chosen of Wrath and a, uh, a uh, Helma is a pretty potent combination. You put a, you put a help um, a marker right on someone's deployment line, and they kind of have to deploy all around it, and they can't advance as long as the uh, uh, Chosen or other units can uh, potentially appear behind them, or it's just game over. And that's a really powerful... Uh, incentive for you to be able to sit on the objective first and say, "Come get me, bro." The the Hellmore Warriors isn't really a thing in the UK. There's a couple of people have tried it, like uh, Chris Bond recently tried it at the, the Scottish Championships, but it's massive in Germany and and um, the Scandinavian countries. Because I remember uh, Henry moaning about it at, at Nordcon last year that it was just that was the army to beat was the Warriors set up with the um, with the, the what's it called now? It's not called Hell Cannon. Helma. Helma. It is. It's a little bit of a crutch. It, it makes for a themed list, but um, it certainly adds a new dynamic to uh, uh, to the way the Warriors play. 
So what's your opinion on uh, Feldrax? Because they're the thing that are, are dominating or ha- had been dominating the UK scene for a long time. They are, and they're, they're also dominating the scene here in the US. And from a purely uh, uh, in, introverted perspective, my ch- uh, 10 Chosen of Wrath go through them like butter. So they're obviously garbage. <laughs> oh, they're obviously shit. <laughs> obviously, yeah. Yeah. But how many skeletons um, did they kill in a turn? That's the real question. Well, nobody, That's plays measure success. nobody plays undead. It's because they're, they're, you know, underpowered and need massive buffs, right? No, no, no. They're they're overpowered. <laughs> oh, overpowered. right. They're completely overpowered. Goddamn skeletons running everywhere. They're just so trustworthy. That's why. So, are you uh, a regular tournament goer, or is it kind of just events in your local area that you try and get to? Um, when the ninth age came around, I think we were all kind of lost when uh, GW decide decided to murder uh, Warhammer Fantasy. And um, I saw, again, it was once bitten 360's battle reports where he said, hey, I'm playing this new Ninth Age game and this, that, and the other. And um, so I checked it out and I, I really liked the game. Uh, so I went to every single tournament in my area because I wanted to show as much support as possible. I wanted to make sure that, and I, I don't even think I was staff at this point, just to get as many bodies there as possible and try and rebuild the hobby because I think all of us had. Um, you know, one, two, five armies, and yeah. we really didn't have any idea what to do with them. I was, I was really hoping to maintain the the wargaming aspect. Uh, once, once Warhammer imploded, I don't know what you guys tried, but I tried uh, Kings of War, mm-hmm. and it's a fun game. It doesn't really scratch the itch. It's, it's kind of like playing, going from playing chess to playing checkers. Yeah, I, I don't take anything away from them. The Having fixed bases is amazing for uh, the modeling aspect. I, I'm mm. much more of a, uh, I shouldn't say more, but I'm about equal uh, a hobby guy as I am a uh, player. But uh, I wasn't a big fan of the game itself. Uh, I tried AOS when it first came out, and that was a colossal disaster. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for the first few years, I went to every single tournament I could possibly find, and uh, now I only go to the ones that are uh, in my local area, half due to just time and busyness, and half due to having a wife. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable. Understandable. Yes. Fortunately, not, the, not in that order. <laughs> the female viewership of our podcast is so low that that kind of comment is perfectly fine. <laughs> Yes. Do you guys no. do the same approach to me where like you um you plant the seed really early on? So oh, like yeah. maybe in like four months in advance, like, oh there's a bank coming up in the middle of September. Let me clear that. Yep. Yeah. My wife going. and I are super organized and she has a, a work calendar, so I make sure I, I add a a little a little note <laughs> into that electronic calendar. You know, but a, a week before. Oh hey, by the way. This is coming up. I won't be around next weekend. What's the kind of uh, state of the ninth age in the in the US just now? Are, are tournaments still fairly well attended, or is it going down, or is it going up? It's. I'm happy to say, well, right before COVID, it was going straight up. Um, nice. There were there were more tournaments than you could shake a stick at. But the U.S. is so big, you you can't get to all of them. There's yeah. so many of them you have to fly to. I'm in lovely San Diego. I have always wanted to go up to the Pacific Rim tournament. It's the one uh, United States. Uh, team tournament, four man teams, or oh, five man nice. teams, and 
I've only been in one team tournament in my life. Oh my God. It was so fun. Uh, <laughs> we didn't even win. We, we came in second. Everybody said we brought a knife to a gunfight and we came, we were one point away from s- scooping the whole tournament, but it was the most fun I've had in a tournament by far. Pacific Rim is coming up in December. Um, the joust is up in LA and that is in June. Uh, the zoo is coming up. I think that's going to be in August. Those are the big ones in, on my corner of the continent. Mm. And then, um, every few weeks, uh, there's many tournaments going on all, all over the place. I think actually this morning there's, uh, a tournament that I could have gone to, but, uh, I didn't feel like driving all, all the way up to LA for it. And so those kind of tournaments like the, the Joust and Pacific Rim, that's all West Coast events, I take it. Yes. That's, those are, all three of those are just in California. Right, and cool. Just to give perspective, driving from San Diego, which is pretty close to the Mexican border, up to San Francisco, which is about halfway up California, mm. is a nine-hour drive. Bloody hell. Yeah, we've got, like, no perspective on that kind of, like, we're, like, driving down to the English borders three hours, and we're like, oh, can we really be arsed doing that? <laughs> Well, don't you guys have like some kind of a, a tunnel or a flying bridge or something where you can just drive over to France? Yeah, we do. But the problem is you've got to drive through England to get there. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Another couple of English viewers just dropped off the road. Right, Paul, you're going to uh, you're going to Scandiland in the, yeah. the autumn, right? So that'll be cool. Yeah, there's a couple of us going over to uh, Copenhagen for an event. So that should be fun. But yeah, we're going to fly. We're not going to drive. I know some of the guys were talking about driving to Luxembourg last year when ETC was going to be there. But um, I think that's just because Tim always has like the worst luck when he flies. Like he always misses his flight, loses his bag, gets cavity searched at the gate. Like anything that can go wrong will go wrong with Tim. So you never really want to travel with him. Yeah, actually, I remember before we went to Serbia for ATC, before, like, maybe like three days before we got on the plane, it was like, something's going to go wrong with me. Just watch. We were like, there's no way, because last year he lost luggage and shit, and it was just a nightmare. (laughs) And, like, Ed lost luggage as well when we were in uh, Croatia. It's like, there's no way that happens again. And uh, when we landed and we were waiting for everyone in Serbia, I just saw Tim, like, marching about the, the, like, the info desks. And you were just like, something's gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's got an unbelievable habit of letting. Well, it's not his fault. He obviously doesn't let it happen. But like, uh, yeah, he's got an unbelievable habit of just bad shit happening to him. But uh, at least he didn't shit himself this year, so that's good. Yeah. So, Swings yeah. and roundabouts. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So we, we've got obviously we've got loads to talk about today. And uh, thank you again for deciding to get up at silly clock to come and talk to Scrum. Um, but before we do that, we have to make sure that all our listeners get their daily sauce, uh, daily sauce, daily dose of Martin's salty juiciness. Um, so we're going to take a trip down to everyone's favourite salt bank. Yeah, baby. It's salt time. So on today's salt mine, we are going to be talking about parry. Now, I don't know if Paul maybe wants to introduce this because he had a really good impression of Martin talking about parry earlier that I'm sure he wants to share with everyone. 
Yeah. So as I said, it's very exciting. We're back to playing physical games again. Uh, so yesterday, me and Martin played a game, which was lovely. Um, and he had one or two things to say about Parry, some of which I agree with. Basically, in his opinion, it overrides a lot of design in the game and is just a flat buff onto certain units and then certain situations that he feels are not a good thing for the game. So, for instance, why does a giant tree man hit a small goblin on a 4+, plus because he is wielding a small bit of wood in front of him? That seems strange. And uh, I kind of see where he's coming from. Like, I mean, I remember playing Warriors and, you know, I'd, I'd build this super killy chosen lords, you know, 800 plus points being like, oh, this guy's going to kill the world. And then, oh, you've got a shield? Oh shit, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you in a four now, not a two. What is this nonsense? <laughs> like, it is quite frustrating. And I think part of his criticism is obviously like situations like that. I get like this disproportionate in size to me should offset that rule somewhat so maybe it should be that the the automatically hitting on a four plus should only come into being if you're of the same size if you're bigger then it it shouldn't work but maybe that's too complicated but i know like in other situations it's more about how it can offset certain weaknesses in armies so mm-hmm. you know martin likes to have a a jab at ogres every opportunity he gets and I think for him having multiple units with parry just offsetting the the kind of poor offensive defensive skill of the army just to him feels like you're not you, you don't really have that army weakness anymore because you have an iron fist. I think for ogres iron fists are obviously a an army specific design so it's not quite the same as comparing it to something like a basic shield because it's doing other things and it is expensive but I get where he's coming from. It's it's very frustrating when you're an elf and you've got to hit something on a four plus because you've got a great weapon and it's quite frustrating from that point of view. Mm. What do you guys think? Do you think Parry's okay in the game? Do you think it's it needs tweaked? I think it's an issue of scaling, to be honest. Everything when you're talking about strength three models, uh the rules seem to work extremely well. But you're right, when you start looking at ogres and dragons, uh hitting the little goblin who has his little crappy wooden shield on a four plus it it doesn't scale very well mm. uh it, it's something that we could add to the game but there's a lot of rules and uh, is it really going to add that much to the game experience maybe but maybe not okay so you think the complexity potentially outweighs any benefit from doing that then I can see an argument both ways. Uh, I've kind of mused with the same thoughts in my head before, but I've, I've never really taken the time to come to any real conclusion because I don't work on the rules team. Um, I don't have any influence over them. I, I can't even bribe them. Um, so it is what it is. But I, I part of me at least does agree with you. Okay. What do you think, Andrew? Do you agree? Or do you yeah, think I, I, I mean, it's conceptually it's, it's stupid right well how come a dragon is hitting a, a goblin with a four plus it doesn't make any sense i'm um, like what the fuck is that shield made out of um <laughs> but i think it's probably like the lesser of evils because like i remember that like before the parry rule as it is now like shields mm. used to be basically useless they used to give you like plus one defensive skill or something like that so like you were you were never never really like it was never the optimal choice 
Um, so at least this gave a role for hand weapon shield kind of units. And then on the other side, again, going into that kind of lesser evil argument, like single models, things like monsters are already so good in the game that things like parry are actually a serious issue for them. Mm. And they can get around it to a certain extent with stomps and stuff, so it's not even the end of the world, but at least that's a tool that you can use against them. And taking parry off things like, um, you know, your standard strength three shitty uh, infantry might swing it even more in the favour of single models and monsters. I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, like, would would it just giving a flat plus one to defensive skill, would that be enough? No. I don't I mean, I... On top of armour? I mean, the answer to that question is hell no. We actually yeah. did that at one time. I'm sorry, I am also a bucket full of uh, institutional knowledge. Um, <laughs> we, we actually did try that at one yeah. time, and I don't know if you remember, but the discussion on the boards for a very long time was, why play, in- why play infantry? They yeah. just die. They just get slaughtered. And so they had to up the power of the shield in order to give them a little more reason to be on the field. Yeah, and I think that's where the conflict comes from because I think we can all agree that, you know, conceptually it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense and it does break your kind of immersion when you see something like a dragon bounce off 20 goblins with, uh, with shields. Or maybe it doesn't, maybe that's exactly how you think that fight goes. But, uh, yeah, I think that it's one of those rules that allows at least standard infantry to have a meaningful impact in the game and, you know, a big emphasis of the rules team over the last kind of year has been trying to increase the power of basic infantry and trying to get more people to take blocks infantry. So I think if you were to change that, then you, you know, you're risking all that progress. But I, I do take Martin's point as well, because when you start giving parry to, I don't know, uh, things like fucking giants, um, that is, you know, a problem because that's not really what the parry rule was built. Like one of the infernal, oh no, it's the engine, isn't it? Then the fucking infernal engine gets parry. What is that? Like I, I, at that level, I'm 100% behind Martin. Fuck that. But, uh, the, <laughs> well, the rule the in the Infernal God. Dwarf book is you have to paint all the shields that look like Captain America shields. And that explains it right there. Uh, that one of the small print rules that's at the front of the page. Yeah. Yes. The Ogre Giant gets parry as well if you take an Arvist. <sighs> yeah. I mean, at least conceptually, when you're looking at that angle, it's, well, if a, shield's got a, if a giant's got a shield, it must be one hell of a big-ass shield. It's the other direction that seems to make less yeah, sense to yeah. me, where it's like a little tiny goblin waving a little bit of wood around ain't doing shit to a, a giant <laughs> that can squash it. Like, do you know, it's not making it any harder to hit. I think for that, you would argue, though, that it's not the individual, it's the unit. So it would be like a shield wall. Trying yeah, to... but that's just, but surely that's easier to hit because now it's just a big flat target. <sighs> yeah, potentially. I refer you to the image in your head of Arwen facing off against the Witch King. She had a shield. That didn't that go so well for her. He swung his mace, the shield shattered, broke her. But then, the small halfling, aka Goblin, saved the day. So, does that metaphor hold? Well, yeah, because he had a real attack. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, I think we're adding a lot of complexity on the parry rule. If there's <laughs> going to be small hobbit creatures appearing. Yeah. We've also made uh, Mary a shady git for some reason. But. <laughs> Sounds like an expensive upgrade to me. Yeah. So yeah, that would be where I stand on it. I think it's probably a kind of lesser evil 
Um, and I don't really know what you would replace it with, to be honest. Like, cause like Grim said, when they tried to do the, um, the plus one defensive skill, it just wasn't good enough. At one time, they had, it gave a six up parry? Or a six up Aegis save. Yeah, in yeah, that. Eighth edition, right? That was eighth or seventh, yeah. I yeah, cause, cause I remember Zinch gave you an extra plus one on top of that. So you had Warriors of the, or Chaos Warriors running around with Zinch that also had a, a oh, five that's special right. save. On top of their armor save. Yes. I forgot about that. But even that wasn't enough. <laughs> I mean, it blocked one sixth of a of an attack. Eh, kind of crappy. Yeah. On top of an armor save, having a five up, it's pretty special save on top. It's pretty good. I mean, but most again, most of your shitty infantry are going to be shield and light armor, so it's a six oh, I'm, top. I'm talking about on, I'm talking about on, on warriors though that are running around with a three plus armor save. They also yeah, have a five up ages to stand. You're the fuckers that break these simple rules, aren't you? So I'm thinking about the lowly skeleton that needs that shield. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, with adding, like, a caveat on Tapari, whereby basically it only, that 4 plus only works when you're being hit by a model of the same size. So large against large works, standard against standard works, giant against giant works, but when you've got anything bigger attacking anything smaller, then it doesn't work. Would that detract too much from the desire to encourage infantry builds? I think it goes back to Grimm's point about, you know, you're adding in then a lot of complexity and is actually the, the end product worth it? But then, I mean, you I, know, you're not even just word that in such a way that it, the wording of the rule isn't necessarily complex. And I don't think as a con- concept that's a particularly complicated rule either. When you compare it to things in the book like shooting and how complicated that is with shooting over other units and how many pages yeah. you need to make clear how that works. I think that's quite straightforward. Actually, this is a complete segue, but uh, in regards to those kind of rules, uh, I am yet to meet a person that fully understands the tall rule. Every time it comes <laughs> up in a game, both players look at each other and like, is that how that works? It, that came up yesterday in our game and we had a, a, a two-minute <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Always happens. I think yeah. it's, yeah, maybe it's just worse when you're actually playing with models because you you obviously have that added visual where you're trying to conceptually think like how does it work. Maybe it's easier thinking about it in UV where everything's just two dimensional. But yeah, okay. Shall we leave the the parry conversation for there? Then we can agree that it's not ideal, but it's maybe uh, yeah. it is what it is. And if anyone has an excellent idea about what an alternative is, uh, let us know, and uh, we'll uh, keep that to ourselves. <laughs> that will, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I would just really struggle to think what a better solution is but without kind of skewing that power scale one way or another. It's maybe just one of these things that we need to learn to love. But then, how um, how set in stone are the core rules? Because I remember, like last year, it was very much you know the rules now won't change really moving forward. Um, but there's been a couple suggestions about tweaks and things, and like the Arata was released. Um, and confusingly, some of the errata actually has quite a big impact on some rules, um, but they haven't added that to the main rulebook. So I don't actually know how set in stone the, re- the main rules are just now. They are set in stone. There might be erratas, but the main rulebook will not change. Okay. You're stuck with parry. Yep. Okay. At least for this edition. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Well, I mean, conceivably, there's going to be new rules. <laughs> no, you can't take it back. You That's said a it. first Mad Get exclusive, <laughs> ninth day, second edition coming out, 2022. 
Um, <laughs> okay, before we get Grim in more trouble, uh, because he's about to get in uh, even more trouble when we start talking about how much he hates the Infernal Door pick, uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll go into the uh, the main topic of the show. So, Grim, while we've got you here, there's a bunch of stuff that we want to talk to you about. First and foremost is basically going back to what you were you were talking about earlier about you know how you got in the project and how you find yourself on the exec board and you know what what does a day in the life of the exec board actually look like? Uh, we're only asking because we're we're the peasants clamouring at the ivory tower and we don't know what the wallpaper looks like inside. So. Ah uh, yes, um, I spend it's it's probably about fifteen hours a week. It's not a tremendous amount of work because I like what I do so much. Contrast that with uh, the rules team, who I think spend about thirty hours per week and do two Skype meetings per week. My my workload seems fairly balanced, but I will log on. I will see my thirty notification <clears throat> thirty notifications and. 30 private messages in the morning. I will reply to all of those. By the time I'm done replying to those, I have 30 private messages and 30 notifications to go through. Then I go to work and I come home and I reply and do that again. But it's actually, when I first joined the Ninth Age, I was really excited because I'm like, oh, I'm going to get to see all the secrets. <laughs> no, I, I, now I just don't want to see the secrets at all. But... I work with the absolute nicest people you could ever possibly hope to meet online. I think you guys know Ed already. Yeah. Scottish Knight. Fortunately, yeah. Yes. Yeah, he's all right. He's all right. Please uh, please beat him at every uh, game you play against him, by the way. Yeah. 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 My um, is pretty decent, I'm going to say. Well, I heard he was the worst player in Scotland. That's what I heard. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, that's, well, that's what I tell people, but yeah. I, I don't know if that's fully true or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the people on the executive board are are so they want to help out so much. Um, I sometimes feel like I really uh, wonder how I got the position, and they've all got more experience than I do, so I'm still the new face on the board. And I think I've been there for two and a half years now, almost three years, three years in June. And then we have the advisory board, and uh, again, uh, super dedicated, really wonderful people. We have a side chat that is almost exclusively devoted to memes, um, because everybody there just has a fantastic sense of humor. You kind of have to for some of the stuff that you see. Is Michael a part of this? <laughs> yeah, how many memes are about Michael? <laughs> uh, I choose not to answer. <laughs> You only get three passes on this podcast. That's, that's one burn. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I, I, sorry you broke up there. I, I missed that question. Uh, actually, the number one question I see people have is that they want to volunteer, which is fairly easy to do. You know, you just fill out an application and say, hey, I, I want to I wanna join this team or that team or, you know, whatnot, or I've got this super special skill of I'm a lawyer or a graphic artist or, a, you know, I can help out in this way and Great, as long as you're not a total jerk, you're in. People want to know how they move up the ladder, and the answer to that is very simple. Don't be a dick. Be nice to the people you work with. Support uh, the project. <laughs> so many people uh, on the forums, staff on the forums will go into the public forums, and they say some, they, 
can say some pretty questionable stuff, stuff that they'll say, uh, this rule sucks and I can't believe they did it. And I'm like, you know, I don't know what you do for a living, but if you went into the lobby of your real job, whether you make steel or you work in a restaurant or whatever, and you went in the lobby and you said, oh, our food just sucks. <laughs> you know, I get that it's a volunteer project, but sometimes people need to use a little more filter there. And that's probably one of the number, the, the biggest challenges we have is the executive board uh, trying not to overreact to those kinds of things. Um, but overall, it's, it's really fun. Um, I get to see the projects that are coming up. Uh, I get to see uh, the updates that are coming up. Uh, and, and sometimes when it's an army that you play, it's really hard to watch because you're like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, take that idea, do that, do that, definitely do that. And then they don't do that. And you're like, oh, that would have been so cool. Now, keep in mind, I have exactly zero design skills in my, in my little pinky. I, I am so bad at design. I watch the groups in the background because I, I don't interfere at all. My, I, I would just make a mess of things if I even tried. Only the design teams are allowed to uh, talk in the design discussions. And I don't know where they find these people, but they are so creative. When a new book comes out, I give the same speech to everybody. And I say, uh, when you're talking about things, I, I don't worry about your timeline. I want you to talk about every idea, no matter how off the wall. I want you to run down every blind alley. Consider everything. So that when you actually make a decision, you know why you picked it and it's the right one. The Infernal Dwarves, they're sort of perpetually in a beta status, but they're also the first team that we had in the new process. Uh, before them, it was always the rules team that was making the books. They were putting out one book a year and we thought, hey, doing some simple math, that means we'll have all the books done in 15 years. That's not going to work. <laughs> So that's why we started putting together design teams, and they are just knocking it out of the park with the, the amount of speed uh, that they're going and the creativeness they're coming up with with their members. I'm definitely glad I'm not a part of one of those teams because I am, I am not suited to the design team. Everybody would be strength 10, tough 10. Plus <laughs> the party goblins. Yeah, yeah. everyone would have party. Yeah. <laughs> yes, everybody would have fairy except skeletons. <laughs> oh. Um, so can I just touch it on that before we kind of dive more deeply into that? Could you just give us a kind of overview of the kind of structure of this? Because I think a lot of people in the forum you know, log in and they'll see a tag exec board or advisory board uh, or design team. What's the kind of like superstructure? Um, who's at the top and who makes those decisions further down the line? The true power of the uh, Ninth Age resides comfortably in the hands of human resources. <laughs> very, very few things happen without their say-so. The executive board makes the the big decisions, like um, uh, when to release certain information or we greenlight projects, uh, things like that. Uh, we kind of pick who we think would be a <clears throat> a good fit for the advisory board. Uh, the advisory board is basically the executive board. They just don't get voting rights on some issues. Uh, like the, right now we are talking about, um, uh, spoiler alert. Oh, a spoiler for you guys. A spoiler. <gasps> the 
vermin swarm book is going to be crawling out of the sewer soon. I know. Big shocker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we have an internal policy that when one book enters its alpha phase, then we also announce who the next book in the queue will be. And so right now we're deciding what book that should be. And we get in the executive board gets input from the advisory board uh, and the art team and the ACS team and the rules team and the designers and so on. And it's based on playability and uh, the number of builds there are and how broken things are and overpoweredness and underpoweredness. Do are, are we ready for it? Do we have artists lined up? You know, there, there's lots of things that go into it. Um, but the advisory board, if, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, um, they would be able to pick uh, somebody from the advisory board to instantly step into the executive board's shoes. The advisory board are basically executive board, except we just only have a certain number of seats, and I drew the short straw and got stuck on one. <laughs> um, we have team leads. Uh, team leads make their own teams. Uh, we give them complete autonomy because they know their teams better than anyone else will. Management is basically there to help the team leads do whatever it is that they want to do. Um, we might say yes or no to uh, a particular project, uh, but uh, basically team leaders run their own show and uh, pick their own team and manage their day-to-day affairs. They give us their timelines of what they're working on and how long it's going to take and can they squeeze in this extra side project and oh, by the way, we also need to do this, this, and this and they say yes or no or that's going to yes, we can do that, but it's going to take us an extra six months. Uh, and then there's people who volunteer for the teams and HR controls the, the, this person's wearing too many hats or this person is definitely not suited for this team or these two people should not work together because they hate each other or yeah, actually there's, there's not too many people that hate each other. Um, there were a few instances where we had personnel issues, but by and large, everybody really gets along, works hard and, uh, plays very nicely together we've been very lucky in that regard so far either of you have you know 10 or 20 or 50 hours a week that you have nothing to do with uh feel free to volunteer it's the time you're absolutely right it's the time because i remember that um when i was on the uh, acs and stuff and paul you'll be the same with play testing it's amazing how much time just the basic stuff does like just like sending messages and that. And I, I'm amazed that you're able to do it all. Um, and I'm amazed that Paul, you've been able to do all this head of play testing because it must be far more than whatever I did when I was part of ACS. I feel like ACS probably is more demanding because you're dealing with the whole army community where at least when you're on a team, at least with, I can say this as far as play testing is concerned that, you know, I'm managing only 20 to 30 people. Only. Uh, yeah. Only, but, if, yeah. but yeah, but like if you compare that to the number of people that are coming on and talking about their army, you're potentially talking about hundreds to thousands of people that can be leaving their opinions that you've got to try and read and take note of and then relay what the kind of consensus is or if there isn't a consensus onto whatever it is that you're talking about to whatever team. So I think all the teams will have their own challenges and, and certainly human resources like because obviously we've had a lot to deal with them with 
recruitment because there's quite a high turnover rate within playtesting that they definitely have a really hard job in terms of trying to manage people because I'd say that as, as far as playtesting is concerned for my position is that's where most of my time goes towards is managing people in the team whereas if you're on human resources <coughs> you're obviously managing every team <laughs> so mm. I can imagine that's the most demanding so I totally get that point Paul, you had a point about oversight that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so that's something that I feel like has came up sometimes when I've been speaking to people on other teams is that um, it would be good to get your insight on Grim is how much oversight actually is there in the project for what people are producing, whether that be actual content for people to play or oversight of performance and how you're actually performing within their role whether that be managing people or assigning tasks, working with other people, like how much of that actually goes on? Ooh, that's a, that's a hard question, actually. It kind of depends on the product. Sometimes people come to us and say, hey, look at what I've done. Can we use this? And something like that is given to an appropriate team. Maybe it's background. Maybe it's the rules team. Maybe it's the project manager. And they will look it over and give it a thumbs up, thumbs down. We need to change this, edit this, whatever it's going to be. But for the day-to-day stuff, it's mostly the the team leads that manage themselves, and we rely on them to come to us and say, I'm understaffed, I need uh, more resources for this, I want to do this project, and I think we can do it with uh, this many people. Uh, can, I, can, can you guys uh, green light this? And we say, no, uh, we need more information. Um, but before anything is released, um, background wise, for example, nothing background wise, re- uh, gets released until Scottish Knight reads it and it gets his own personal seal of approval. Nothing <clears throat> rules wise, nothing gets released without the, uh, rules team, uh, going over it a dozen times and picking it apart and, uh, it gets their approval. I, I don't know how those guys manage to keep it all in their heads. In their discussions, somebody will come up with this great rule <clears throat> that I think is fantastic, and they will cite ten things that it breaks, and I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't totally didn't think of that at all. Um, there's a ton of oversight, and yet I always feel like we need more. I wish I could be in more places at once, uh, but unfortunately, my marriage would probably collapse if I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. What was your kind of experience of that, Paul? As like the head of the playtest, did you feel that there was enough oversight, or you know, there was too? I much? mean, it's kind of hard to say because I feel like playtesting is quite an easy team, like in terms of what we're doing, because we're working directly with the LEB team. Like we we can, and obviously because there's like a group of them, there's constant back and forth with just submitting reports, and then them asking questions about war impressions were of certain rule rules how did certain units operate and so you'll one report could have five six seven pages of conversation about certain things so i feel like in terms of oversight from our end it's quite simple from my point of view over like looking at what my team is actually producing as long as people are respectful and they're being honest and they're producing feedback in a way that is open to discussion and they're not just saying this is rubbish (laughs) for no good reason 
and they're submitting it in the desired format so that the, the LAB team can get the relevant information as quickly as possible because they're effectively reading battle reports. Mm. So it's very time consuming. Then really, yeah. that's all that's really required. So as a team, I feel like it's quite a simple kind of role to, to do. Obviously it's time consuming, but I don't think it's necessarily complicated. Um, I wonder more like how, if a rules team, or not a rules team, but if the design team produce something and the rule team are happy with it and it gets released for public consumption, if there's a lot of kickback and it needs to be reworked, do the exec board ever look at that and think, did we make a mistake or was this just something that we wanted to try and it didn't work and that's okay or is this a consequence of any one team not necessarily performing as how we thought it would. The executive board will not um, step on like the rules team, for example, and say, yeah. I can't believe you did that. That was just really stupid because they are way smarter than we are when it comes to rules. There is no comparison <laughs> there whatsoever. We won't even pretend that there is. Mm. Um, but I mean, it's a volunteer organization as much as we want the best people uh, for the rules team. There are, they're not professionals. Uh, yeah. you know, one, I know one's a doctor and one works in cyber IT and, uh, one, I don't know. They, they have careers in every field you can possibly imagine, but they're not professional rule designers. They're just enthusiasts like you and me. And have they made a mistake and let things through that are bad and broken? Well, yeah, <laughs> lots of times, but I mean, they're smart enough that they won't break the game. There, there are definitely mm -hmm. things where they're like, okay, Suddenly we're seeing Feldrax in every list. Okay, we, we might have to do something about that. <laughs> and they try and fix as much as they can with points. Uh, and when it can't be fixed with points, that's when they'll go back to the design teams and say, we need you to rework this rule. We like the concept. We want this mm -hmm. unit to be defensive and tanky and, and um, really good against these types of units. But um, giving them a two plus board save, we tried it, but it just didn't work. And I so, guess you've also got like the the oversight from the community as well. Like, has there ever been a situation where yep something's been produced <laughs> and like everyone's like really happy with it, and then it gets released, and then have you ever felt that you've needed to change something that you know is good because the community don't like it? Because I know in the past that it's just a case of. Something's just different, and it takes six months for the community to actually realize that, oh, it's actually good, but it's just that it's so different from what we had before that it's fine. Has there, any, has there ever been like an initial kickback and be like, oh, maybe we should change that? Or have you guys generally found that you just kind of have to ride the lightning and just like ride it out and think it'll be fine once we give people time to adjust? That's actually a really good question. Yes, that does happen. Um, the community, well, you guys are on the forums. Uh, you know that the community is not <laughs> shy about sharing their opinions. Yeah. Um, and for every uh, 10 negative ones, there is one positive one as a, as a general rule. Um, the community likes to suggest a lot of very silly things as well. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite was uh, Dread Elves need to be strength five base. I, I thought that was awfully clever because <laughs> they won't work without it. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, it, I, I know it would not be great. 
Wouldn't that be great? Strength five. Dread yeah, yeah. I, I can't see any issues with it personally. <laughs> no, no. I think we should try it and see what happens. Yeah. Um, no, there, there are times when uh, the community really loves something or really hates something, but it's there for a very specific reason. And changing that, if, if there's one thing I've learned from, from um, listening to the rules team's discussions, it's you make one little change way over here and suddenly this huge thing over here doesn't work at all. The butterfly effect can be massive. Mm. So they try and be incremental. They'll make a small change. Oh, that was good. Okay, we'll, we'll inch it closer to what we actually want. Oh, that worked. We'll make another change. Oh, that was too much. We just have to dial it back one. It, it is very much a process. A lot of it is best guess. But when there's a problem... Or when there's when there's something too good or or com- completely doesn't work, uh, the community is the perfect tool for giving us feedback on that. <laughs> and despite what um, I think most people believe or know, because you get um, a notification every time that there's an update to something that you've replied to, uh, a lot of management does not reply to a lot of stuff <laughs> because we get so many notifications <clears throat> and we just don't want any more. Uh, but we read a ton. I'm, I definitely can't read everything in the forums for every army book. There's just too much now. But probably 10 people from staff, 10 different people will read everything that's written. And the good ideas that people suggest constantly flow into the design teams. There are pages and pages and pages of ideas that people have posted in the forums over the years that are almost uh, being put in a vault. And when that army book's time comes, um, a lot of that stuff is going to get discussed. Yeah, I remember, I think I'm right in saying that Damnation from the Warriors book was originally posted on the forums as a rule yeah, suggestion. It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yep, yeah. We, uh, we may pretend that we don't listen to you, but we actually are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been quoted many times saying that the forum doesn't know what the fuck it's talking about, so I'm probably not the right person to be commenting on stuff like that. But um, well, we've, I mean, if it's if it's a one in ten ratio <laughs> yeah, yeah. of good positive comment, then you I mean you're ninety percent correct, I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, if you want your comment to uh, be noticed, I, I I just scroll past the this is shit, this is broken, this this is garbage, I'll never use this unit kind of comments, but. If people say, um, I really like this unit, I think you guys stumbled a bit, or you missed an opportunity, or um, this works great here but doesn't work great there, if it's constructive uh, feedback that that actually does make sense, it totally gets listened to and discussed internally. You may not see the internal discussions, but a lot of users have had a lot of, fe- um, a lot of uh, impact on the project, and they might not even know it. How practical would it, just thinking about that, how practical would this be as a suggestion then? And it might, it might be completely unpractical if these conversations are happening all the time, as you say, especially with the rules team. Is if anything has been discussed, if someone's posited a suggestion on a forum and it's been discussed, and even if it's been decided that that isn't feasible, would it be practical to take a note of that and actually tell the person that suggested it and be like, by the way, we spoke about that? We can't tell you if we're going to use it or whatever, but we just want to say that was really interesting. Thanks. I think that would mostly come down to um, just the the general feedback that people get 
in the forums themselves, especially from our ACS team. Our ACS team is our interface uh, army community support team is the interface to the general user base. Um, and I think that would be a great idea. I, as a player, when I was a, just a player and not staff, I would have loved to have known that, hey, that, that stupid idea I had where uh, I, I decided that all, all hobgoblins should be armed with cannons and you guys actually considered that? I think that's great. <laughs> but yeah. I, I don't think they have the time or the manpower to do that. Yeah, okay. I would say, though, that um, I think the project historically has, a, has had a real issue with um, communication in that, on that kind of stuff. But the last series of book updates that came out, there was a kind of brief kind of overlook. Um, I think it was just Lo that, that posted it on the main news channel. And it was that kind of conversation. It was the reason behind the changes. And they actually just took, it wasn't a huge amount, but it was, it was just a kind of general, this is the kind of thing that we were trying to do across the books. And it was basically trying to increase the power of standard infantry, which is why the, the command stuff all went down. And then there was little blurbs for each of the army books where it explained the changes and, you know, the reasons behind them and what they were trying to achieve with it. And maybe in some instances why they didn't go with certain changes. And I think that's massive. For someone that, you know, obviously I'm lucky enough that, you know, I've got a little bit of a foot in both camps so I can kind of see, you know, what's happening on both sides. But for someone that doesn't have that, just being talked through that process is a huge improvement on what the, the project's done in the past. So I would, I would urge, I know it takes a long time to do and it must be a pain in the arse to do it, especially for the ACS guys. But I think it makes a massive difference. Uh, we thought so too. I, I don't remember who suggested it, but uh, that was an internal suggestion that we probably stole off the forums. That now, uh, going forward, we actually have done this for a couple of updates now. Um, when something gets changed, they will try and get uh, designer notes or the rules team notes on why something have changed or the direction they want to go yeah. in, the effect that they're trying to go for, because it, it might be great to have the, or it would be great to have the, the best set of rules in the world, but mm-hmm. if people don't understand why things are happening, sometimes they just don't react all uh, very well because they think it's happening for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's kind of like what you, what they've started to do with releasing the guidelines for army books as well, I guess that helps to kind of increase transparency in terms of what they're going to attempt to do with a book. I think sometimes people's understanding of what is meant within the guideline can be not what's actually intended. So I know in the past, and it might have been, it might have been with the Warriors book, it might, it might not, but I remember um, when they were doing like community polls around what do you guys want? What do you think should be the strengths and the weaknesses of this book going into the design process? So they got an idea of what the community thought. I remember there was a conversation around speed and Mm -hmm. I think people thought speed literally meant movement where in actual fact it meant things like agility. (laughs) And so I think that kind of area of miscommunication in the past has, has been why now people are more critical of things like transparency of the project and being like, you know, there's people have felt like you've asked us one thing and then you've given us something that we didn't anticipate. And there's been that level of miscommunication. So I think anything that improves that is always going to be good and is going to be appreciated by the community on the whole, because 
obviously one of the strengths of the game should be that it's community led, right? Absolutely. And we cannot do enough communication, but we also only have a certain number of hours in our volunteer yeah, lives. Sure. Yeah. So there's a balance there. Yeah. But I guess it's good, always going to improve over time. It's just <laughs> trying to find that balance of what works best for how the project operates. So I'm ashamed to admit that there's been a lot of times when we've um, actually, we, the community is amazing. We're so lucky to have their support um, and veteran users a lot of them have come to our defense to say, oh, I think I know why this happened, and it's X, Y, Z. And they kind of fill in the gaps sometimes when our communication isn't always there. Mm. I want to ask you about the kind of going back to the, the oversight thing and consistency, because you were saying that moving forward, in order to basically churn out more of the legendary army books, a lot of the uh, kind of decision-making has been given to the design teams. Yep. So how do you ensure then that there's a consistency across the army books? Because I think that's one of the concerns maybe a bit strong, but one of the kind of noticeable um, shifts across things like the ID book to the, the Dread Elf book, because they are very different in terms of the design internally of the book. So how do you... And, and is this the role of the exec board at all, or is this kind of just you're going to have to leave this up to the design teams? But how do you maintain that, you know, all the books are of a similar kind of level, a similar level of complexity, and there's not some books that are very different design-wise to others? Um, complexity is hard to measure, I guess. <laughs> mm. um, when the original uh, Infernal Dwarf book came out, it was judged as very complex. <clears throat> the Demon Legions book, when it came out uh, with all the options that it had for all of the units, was deemed as very complex. Yeah. Um, the At the conceptual phase of a book, the rules team will write out a set of guidelines saying we want the army to be fast or slow, um, you know, lightning attack, we want them to have the option for um, this play style, this play style, this play style. They should be they should not have this play style available or um, they should not be strong in this area, this area, this area, this area. And they, they give a basic framework um, and they, they give that to the design team. And then as the design team works, they will come up with a first draft. <clears throat> They'll submit it to the rules team. Uh, the rules team will say, this looks great or this totally goes against what we want. We don't want skinks to be uh, hardcore fighters, so no, they cannot have you know really high weapon skill or whatever. And there's a lot of back and forth between them. Uh, the rules team, we rely on them so much. Uh, I can sing nothing but their praises. Uh, they they give a lot of consistent feedback, and because they're so in tune with all of the army books, maybe not each person knows every single army book uh, back to front, top to bottom every play style, every nuance, but in the group, uh, everybody knows enough of the army books that when they have their meetings, there's, there's competent, qualified people to say, I see this is a huge problem or, or I think this fits very, very well. Uh, and it's, there's a constant back and forth between the design team and the rules team so that the rules that come out, um, a lot of thought and consideration has gone into them nothing is is done very willy-nilly okay. i don't know if that answers your question or not but <laughs> yeah it's just i mean I, again i don't envy 
um, either the exec board or the, I really don't envy the design team and the roast team because you can't please everyone, right? And especially in a community like this where um, I think a lot of people are coming at it from different angles and a lot of people have preconceived notions of what each army should be <laughs> and they don't always match up with what other people's notions of what the army should be. So you're always going to be in that kind of uh, catch-22, but again, you're, we're trying to produce a, a game system in its entirety and you've got to kind of keep that in mind as well, that you want all these army books to A, be distinct, but A, you know, B, you should be able to pick up one army book and understand it, and then pick up another army book and go, okay, I can, you know, still understand how that army functions. They should be, you know, written in, you know, design-wise different languages, if that makes sense. But, yeah, it, it's, I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm just saying that I think that's a really hard balance to walk as you go further and further into the uh, legendary army books. Oh, yeah, and we'll never get it right, but we have the balance of experience. We have the balance, uh, the benefit of the tournament analysis team, uh, which provide genuine metrics of uh, not only who's winning, but um, of these 50 tournaments for vampire counts, how many people took an, an altar of undeath? Like they break it down that granular, granularly. That's a word. Nailed it. Uh, so um, they're making informed decisions, but you're right. Uh, they could give every army book um, the the gold treatment and there's going to be somebody out there who doesn't like it, thinks it should be changed it doesn't do what they want it to do they have units of 50 and they can only play units of 40 um, you know, Henry Ford said if he listened to the public he would have designed a faster horse sometimes you just have to <laughs> you just have to go with your gut and uh defy community expectations and if they don't like it then you make adjustments and you change it obviously being privy to some of the, the conversations that go on amongst these teams that we're talking about like the design team the rules team do you ever get the impression grim that they really struggle more with certain books over than others do they feel like oh this particular book is harder for us to work on for whatever reason that might be but do you ever get that impression that they struggle more with certain ones I don't think so. I think the Infernal Dwarf team picked um, the hardest book to do, and they're also the guys who paved the way for every other team behind them. So they've had to struggle more than anyone, I think. But based on what I've seen of the books that have followed, uh, you know, the, the Dread Elves, um, they look great. Uh, Vermin Swarm is really, really cool. And I'm not particularly looking forward to facing them across the table. Uh, <clears throat> even the conceptual designs that they've been talking about with uh, KOE, I mean, every book has its own little challenges, but uh, I think they overall face the same challenges on every single book, but how they manage them and implement them just relies on the team itself. Okay. Why do you think, out of curiosity, why do you think ID are the hardest book? When, when ID was... Uh, came out of their original Slim um, back before their legendary army book status started, they were good at, they had fast movers, they had good shooting, they had high armor, they had good magic. There was nothing they couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And nobody likes having their toys taken away, but they knew that they had to uh, impose some limits. And as an Infernal Dwarf player... They are the coolest army in the world, but I, I, I lament that my Kadim Titan is 
just a shadow of his former self. I understand <laughs> why it has to be that way, but I, I don't particularly like it. It's almost like the, the more mixed arms kind of armies are always going to be harder to balance, right? Because they, they don't specialize in one particular area. So it's not like you're creating a book around fast attack, like which is what the Dread Elves feels like. Whereas when you're trying to cater to multiple list design options and things, that's actually a much harder task. I think so, too. I mean, most people compare Infernal Dwarves to Dwarven Holds. Mm. But I think they're actually more comparable to Empire Stuntsall. Yeah. They're, they're much more of a jack-of-all-trades army. They can do a lot of stuff, and they can do it very well. Or they can do a lot of stuff, but they can't do it very well, sorry. The primary difference being uh, Empire is uh, cheap, kind of crappy troops, and Infernal Dwarves are more elite, more rugged troops. But they both have the same kind of strengths overall. So, I mean, we've already touched upon this, but how do you guys decide on which, like, the order for the, the Legendary Army books? Because this is one of the things that whenever there's a, a mention of what's coming next in the lineup, the form, you know, explodes and people start talking. And recently there was uh, the Saurian Ancients announced after KOE. So how did yep. you guys decide on Saurian Ancients? And is there a process for deciding the books which come after that? There is. There is. Uh, we have a pool of three. And then we, t- we pick one out of that pool. But the, we ask the ACS to weigh in on playability and balance. We ask the art team on what do they have art ready for or what do they think they'll have art ready for. Uh, we ask the rules team of what armies they think um, are the, in the highest need of, of uh, being updated because sometimes Sylvan Elves are a great example. A lot of the players think all the armies fielded look exactly the same. Well, that that's a pretty good reason for getting an updated army book right there. Um, We get input from all of the teams uh, and the ACS team gets input uh, either directly or through indirect questions from the community. But eventually it comes down to the executive board to say, this is what everybody's input is. What do we think the next army book needs to be? Now, uh, since the, uh, with the vermin swarm, soon to emerge from their little holes we are in the process of discussing uh, which army book should be next and uh, since you have a soapbox uh, so to speak if i were to ask both of you what army books you think uh, might be next into the queue uh, what would you suggest what do you think the community needs i've got a very clear two i wouldn't know what my third choice would be i don't know about paul yeah, we kind of spoke about this before. I think our two we agree on okay. w- would be Sylvan Elves and Dwarven Holds. Why Sylvan I think Elves? Sylvan Elves... Sylvan Elves is a book that I'm personally looking at playing in the future. And from reading the book and from playing against them in our kind of uh, little niche and obviously listening to Martin, who is the saltiest person alive, <laughs> I can... I can definitely see why he in particular, but why the community may be, and I don't know if it is because I don't really spend any time on the, on the forum, but I can understand why they would be frustrated with the book. Um, some of it is around pricing. Some of it is around, um, just design and the limitations that are posed on the book. For instance, there's a shooting cap, but there's no shooting cap in Herman Swarm. There's no shooting cap in ID, or you can certainly bring more shots. I mean, for instance, 
you can bring more shots in core and Dread Elves than you can within the entire Sylvan Elf book. Empire is another good comparison. The amount of shooting that Empire can put out is insane compared yeah. to. and obviously Sylvanous. there's a there's a balance there because it's it's different kinds of shooting. It's going to be a little bit more specialised, but that feels certainly in its current form wrong. And I think just generally, I just think the book needs something to help it out a little bit. I feel like if you want to play avoidant shooting, if that is, is even is that the, the direction the, the, the project wants to go in? Because I feel like that's probably what brings people to Sylvan Hills, at least historically. And it feels like under the current game, they struggle a little bit with that. So I feel like they need something to help with list diversity and um, design, I think, in certain areas of the book. Yeah. That would be my impression of Sylvan Elves. Dwarves are just little hairy scumbags that I feel like they need to pick something. And again, it's, it's similar. Like, listening to Fraz, I get why he's maybe frustrated with that book. But playing against them, I just find them very infuriating. Like, you get bonuses to charge, or but you also get bonuses if you're charged. Like, so shouldn't you just be good at one of those things? Like, things like that, I just find a bit weird in the book. Um, they're not supposed to be magical, but you can have a very strong magic phase with the Dwarven Holds. Um, kind of similar to KOE, like I'm really happy KOE are getting a new book. I just think Dwarves, more than Sylvan Elves, are just boring. And maybe they just need some flavour, and they need to I think it would be good if the project just decided that this is what dwarves are going to be good at. We're going to go in this direction and we're going to just freshen up the book. Yeah. Um, and I think that would stand them in good stead. So I think that's my impression of those two choices. I don't know if you want to add to any of them, Andrew. No, I agree, I agree with basically all of that. And I think that all of the books remaining, and like you, I'm glad that KOE is getting done because I think it was kind of in this camp before it was announced. Um, that both the Sylvan Elves and the Dwarven Holds are hangovers of Warhammer Fantasy. And there's a lot of design choices in those books um, which have come from Warhammer Fantasy and which don't really work anymore. And, and I don't think writing a list for either of those army books is a particularly enjoyable experience, even for players that love the armies. I just think that they are, they're the, for me anyway, they're the two army books that are screaming for a bit of love and attention. And for dwarves, I mean, I, I think the Sylvan Elves, in terms of playability and what the players want, are, should probably be higher up on the list. They should pro- I would put them as the next book that needs to be looked at. But I actually think from a design perspective, the dwarf and the whole book needs to be torn up and completely written again. Uh, and I don't know if that's a particularly popular choice amongst dwarf players, because I think dwarf players are probably the worst for having these competing ideas of what dwarves should be. But I would make dwarves far more... Bear calf. Bear well, calf. Why not? Like at this stage, why the fuck not? Oh, I knew somebody was going to say it. Give them a, you know, <laughs> give them like proper magic, um, because they just that book doesn't fit with the other army books just now, and I don't think it's a particularly fun book to play. It's certainly not a fun book to play against. So uh, yeah, I would have those two. As for the third choice, I really don't know. Um, I would. It's probably for me between Empire and UD. Probably UD would pip it because I think they're probably an army book that needs needs it more than Empire at the moment. Although I think they're probably close. For a third book, I'll selfishly just say Ogres because 
I play ogres, and it would be cool to have a new book. <laughs> I mean, we've spoken about ogres before, right? And actually, I never really thought. I mean, I think ogres is a strong book. It is definitely is. Like the design of the the book and options is actually very limited when you compare it to. If you add up all the things in the book, there are something like 23 options, including mounts within the book. When you look at warriors and orcs and goblins, you're 33. Yeah. Actually, if you compare it, KOE only has more options than ogres because they have more mounts or less mounts. I can't remember which way it is. But yeah, like KOE and ogres are the lowest in terms of things in the book that you can actually take. And I think... Things like Wild Heart lists are very effective, they're very strong, they're very popular, but again, it limits what you can take in half. So you've got a book that has already less than everything else that you can now now take half of everything again. So from that point of view, I think that's maybe why lists look um, quite similar a lot of the time, and there are certain things in the book that very rarely get taken, like most competitive lists I've seen don't take great cans, certainly in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's like your your big de facto cool guy that should be you know, your go to smashy lord and no one takes it because it's just not good. It's just not good enough for the points compared to other things in the book. Um and for all that it gets a lot of hate and I fucking love it. The snow cow just it's so good. It gets it's around so the army good. weakness, doesn't it, Paul? Like a lot of armies do have things to get around weaknesses. Like the Helmaw that we were talking about. That's a direct thing to help warriors get around the table. So I don't think that that's a reason to necessarily choose the ogres to fix. But it's obviously a, a book that a lot of people have a problem with. <laughs> Certainly in our community anyway. <laughs> but I wouldn't choose it because I think it's weak. I think it's a really strong book. And I think it's a. I think it's a really cool book. It, it has different playstyles. You can be fast and smashy. You can go gunline if you want. Um, but I think for those reasons, I would make the case that maybe ogres should be considered. Maybe it should be in the pool. But I don't think it's. I think you could leave ogres uh, as it is for a good while, and I think the community would still be happy with it. So I think there are definitely other books that would be higher up on the rung for contenders. So now you're going to tell us, Grim, what is the next book going to be? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Exclusive number three. Exclusive number three. The next book is going to be Highborn Goblins, Dynasties, (laughs) (laughs) and Ogre Cons. When you started saying Highborn, I was like, oh my god, it's actually going to tell us. No, that's fine. No. I didn't expect an answer. That's okay. No, we're we're actually having the discussion right now. Um, we're we're asking for the the feedback, and uh, I think all but all the teams have reported back except for one. So we should have uh, the next book in the queue's name uh, coming very shortly. But hey, congratulations! You have just contributed to the internal discussions of how these decision decisions actually get made. Yay! Nice. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my money on Sylvans. That's my guess. That's my best guess. I think I'm convinced. I think it would be a brave design team to take dwarves next. Um, I would yeah. I would probably say Sylvans because I think Sylvans is maybe an easier job than dwarves at this point. Um, what do you think, Graham? What do, obviously taking off your exec board hat? 
just as a player, what do you think? As a player, I think uh, Sylvan Elves are one of my three. I think Undying Dynasties are not in a really great place. They're balanced, but the last patch made them kind of boring to play, uh, made their lists very static, and I think they're down to a, a grand total of one valid playstyle, or maybe two if you're a good player. And um, I don't have a third at this point um, as a player. I do as an executive board member, but not as a player. Right. Do you realize through the power of editing software, we can take out that little statement that you had at the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to pawn this off as a as a as an official scoop. <laughs> do you know why we never get guests coming back twice? <laughs> Oh, oh God! <laughs> when we hit fifty episodes, we're just going to release all this added content. That's going to be a special episode. The guy from the exec board said he actually hated Scottish Night. Oh my God! Main page gate. Yes. Oh, I've been relegated down to a peon. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> you can come back on it, might get ready of that. <laughs> hey, I'll have something for your your salt mine if that yeah, happens. Yeah. <laughs> he just dished the dirt, and another thing they did. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. If I can ask you guys, um, how uh, how much of uh, if you don't mind my changing the the the, the, the stream of topic for a little bit, uh, are you guys players or are you more hobby guys? Andrew, go. I'm, I'm, well, I'm definitely a player, but I do hobby. Um, I, I think I've spoken about this before. Like, I would always classify myself as a player first and foremost, but. I've also got like a really weird strain of OCD when it comes to this game, where like everything needs to be painted <laughs> and based, and uh, so yeah, I do like to I do like to hobby, uh, but I'm not a, a hobbyist. I would say I think I'm I, th- I think your hobby I would say your hobby facilitates your play. Yes, yeah, that's probably like you you want you want to play the game and enjoy the game, but you want to do it with nice minis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm more fifty fifty. I, I'm probably less competitive, but I still really enjoy the game. I don't think I would just buy and paint stuff and with with no desire to use it on the table. I would always want to play what I was hobbying, but I probably get as much enjoyment out of hobby as I do from actually playing. But I mean, the I mean the the playing part of it is such a big element of. What personally I get out of the hobby as a whole, like the going to even just your friendly neighborhood gaming store and just socializing with people and playing and just having a good time. Like I'd say that's as as much a draw to the playing element as to the game itself. Yeah. Um, but I, on balance, I would probably say I'm more fifty fifty. The reason I ask is because. 3D printing in the U.S. is becoming incredibly popular, and I'm wondering if it's caught on in uh, mm. uh, on your side of the pond. It's funny you say that because we've actually got we've, we've booked in an episode in a couple of weeks' time to have um, a couple of guys come on to talk about 3D printing. Oh, okay. uh, who've started up their own company um, for 3D printing, and this is yeah, it's it's starting to pick up here. Like you can hear people on the. Uh, UK Discord channel talking about 3D printing and Guillermo had this fucking ingenious idea where he was going to stop buying armies because his partner was on them. So he actually sold an army to throw up a red herring but then bought a 3D printer. 
So he's actually got more minis now, but his partner has no idea about it. Because <laughs> so he, <laughs> he can just print them in the room and they never leave. So, so there's no more parcels appearing. So it's He's playing at a whole there. different level, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, that's clever. I never even thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. So yeah, I think it, I think it's about to become big. Yeah, I think there are some stores now that are starting to offer like three D printing services. Like you, you put a deposit down, and then you, um, you you have a conversation with them as to what it is you want to print, and then they'll print it for you. So you don't actually have to buy a printer. But I think as they, they get more popular and they get cheaper, I think people will inevitably start having home three D printers, even if they only really want to print the odd thing. I think. Um, because there are a lot of really nice like STL files um, that you can't really get otherwise. And I think, especially for Ninth Age, where you can basically obviously use whatever you want, then as the, if the community is going to grow, then I think that is going to definitely help that market. Just because you've just got that much more choice, you're not really bound to what you can buy uh, a Games Workshop or Absolutely. any other big company. So I think... Um, it probably definitely is the future. It's still a bit uh, pricey for my uh, <laughs> for my gaming needs at the minute, so maybe in a couple of years I'll invest when things get a little bit cheaper. That's kind of what I thought too, um, but uh, I, I swallowed the pill and I I, I bought one. Oh wow! I bought a I bought a two hundred dollar printer, and I was very unhappy with it, so I returned it and I got a three hundred dollar printer, and I am now in the process of uh printing off an uh undying dynasty's army that's and because that's the next book right because we just confirmed uh. that <laughs> <laughs> regardless of what i answer i know it'll be edited um no just uh i i i thought um you know i've been playing uh infernal dwarves pretty much exclusively for five years now six years now it might be time just to to change it up a little bit and i've never had an undead army before so I bought a 3D printer, and uh, I'm about halfway through the army, and it's cost me uh, almost $60 in resin, and that's it. Wow. And using mini prices, that's a unit and a half, two units maybe. Grim, why are you telling me this? <laughs> I'm telling you because it has cut down my pile of shame in half. Oh, Okay. So do you find that it's it's an added benefit of then is just you print what you want to paint and yep. then you paint it and it's done. So you never have towers of sprues kicking around. And on top of that, you have a game. Um, you you want to field a unit of fifty? Oh, I need ten more guys. All right, well I'll just put those on the queue and in a day or two I've got the extra ten guys and I can paint them up and there's the army that I want to field. You know what? I, I've seen a lot of like last sword miniatures because they seem to be they do still sell, um, like Lost Kingdoms and other one where they, they are still selling physical minis, but they're really pushing this STL agenda now, where it's you basically just sell the STL files, and they look really really nice. And see I, when you compare that to like some of the mini companies, like Games Workshop just put out stuff for pre-order yesterday, and it was seventy quid here. For the bad guys from the Cursed City box. That is ridiculous. That is not a sustainable... Surely that can't be a a sustainable uh, model moving forward. And yet, you you know, you're talking about having an army for that same cost using the 3D print. So, yeah, I can't see how it's not the future. 
No, I, I think people ha- absolutely have to move that way. It does nothing but save money. I don't know if you guys haven't tried it. Um, it started off here that uh, three guys thought it was just a crazy idea, so they all pooled their money and they bought it, and one guy figured out how to use it. And, uh, you know, six months later, five guys had their own printers, and everybody's just chunking out minis as fast as they can. <laughs> how have you found the quality? Because this is the one thing that puts me off, because I see some stuff uh, like up on the forums and stuff where people have a 3D printed and you can just tell it's not as good, not as crisp. If you print for speed, there is some noticeable lines, but if you, um, I can, I can usually print off, um, a rank and file guy in about five hours, uh, with no visible lines, but I can crank that same mini off in three hours and you might see some subtle, uh, layers on the, on the, right. on the printing. The 3D printing community in the ninth age forums is growing and it's growing fast. Um, every, Quick Kickstarter I see now seems to be just STL files and not yeah. models. So I think at the number one complaint that we have or had was a really high, uh, expensive uh, barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. And this is completely changing that. So if you guys haven't tried it, I would just say give it a whirl. It, it makes a, it makes a huge difference, especially when you know, you know, when you paint your army, it's your army. But now when you're printing your army, and you've selected every single model, it's mm. your army. Mm. I, I wonder in the future if we're going to get to the point where, like I know for, I can't remember what they're called, is it Hero Forge? Yeah. They they do fully customizable models yeah. for D&D. Yep. So you can be like, I want that face, uh, I want that haircut. He's going to have these shoes, he's going to be right-handed, he's going to be standing <laughs> like this, uh, and I want wearing these clothes. Like, you know, you can customize it to that level. I wonder if Massive we're going to get though. to the... Yeah, huge yeah. third leg. I wonder <laughs> if we're ever going to get to the point where you're going to be able to do that on the scale of a rank-and-file army. Like, that would be insane. Because then like, that would be taking that idea to like the nth degree of fully customizable army. We will probably be there in two years. Wow. That's the, that's the next... Mad Get Radio Scoop. Um, God, customizable they, armies. The exclusives are just rolling out. I know, right? How are the Welsh boys and the Thundercocks going to keep up with us? We are just so cutting edge. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that would be awesome. That would be um, very cool. Are you, many people are familiar with uh, Marcos24 and his, um, yeah. his artwork. Uh, he is uh, almost finished with his uh, completely customized uh, Knights of Equitaine uh, 3D printed army that he's designed himself. Yeah, which looks amazing. Oh. Seen this? Up it does. Place. He's he's got a massive amount of skills. I, I nicest guy you're ever going to meet. He's a firefighter and he does all this in his spare time. Does he really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. When California's not on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you say that because we have got the um, the other guys coming on. It's uh, Little Joe and Titan Forge and um, another guy whose name I can't remember, one of the Spanish boys. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this pans out because I remember when Guillermo bought his printer, it was because he thought that this was going to be the next big thing and, and that was only at the start of the lockdown, right? And, you know, in a year, it's really, really exploded. 
Yep. Which is which yep. is cool because we, we will hopefully get to the point, like you were saying earlier, Paul, that like you'll go to a ninth age event and there'll be you know twenty different armies on the table, whereas just now it, you know GW still is the number one provider for us, whereas that might actually change quite markedly in the, the years to come. Yeah, you're always going to have that thing where someone brings out this super unique, awesome-looking army, and they'll make it available for other people to buy. Like, oh, it's so unique and cool, but then 10 people end up having that same (laughs) army. Like, ah, it's not as cool anymore. So I wonder if uh, people will be start becoming a little bit cagey, especially when you get to the point where they're able just to more easily design their own army directly and then 3D print it. I wonder if more people will just be like, no, this this is just for me. I want my own totally unique army. If that ever becomes easily uh, reproducible, then I guess there's less incentive for people to copy each other. But um, that would be very cool to have that option. Think of all the fucked up demon armies you're going to get. You're going to get an army of dicks and stuff like that. It's going to be mental. Oh, yeah. Someone, <laughs> I, I guarantee you'll do this. Someone will troll this and they will 3D print tuna cans and they will do a 3D printed <laughs> tuna can army because they can. And that will be the only reason. Oh God! We've taken the power away from God. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we kind of we wrap up, we wanted to talk about uh, the US tournament scene a bit with you. Um, and it's funny because we recorded an episode which hasn't isn't out at the time of, that we were talking. But uh, the salt mine for that episode was about was the UK starting to embrace more of a US kind of meta, in which it's very aggressive. Um, very, you know, monster heavy, where it's all, it's basically all aggro all the time. Or that seems to be our conception of the US scene. Whether that's the truth or not, uh, you can maybe enlighten us. But what, what's it like in the US from your experience? Uh, based on the, uh, Scottish championships that I just watched with Kev, that's exactly <laughs> what the US meta is. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of individual models, uh, running forward and raffle stomping everything that they come in t- contact with. I mean, it's always been a part of the game, right? But I think over the last few months, and I think maybe UV's had a, a role to play in this where people can play whatever they want, so that there's been a lot of test and kind of more aggro builds. But it has become quite noticeable in the UK the events anyway over the last few months where we are seeing a lot more hyper-aggressive lists and things like it. It's, it's you know, conceptually, it's very similar to, you know, like the, the Minotaur list, but also the Feldrax, like big blocks of Feldrax, that was a big thing. And just, you know, people just shoving armies forward and the salt mine was about basically is that taking something out of the game is movement becoming less important and things like that do you feel uh, having you know playing in the in the u.s seem to think that's true or do you think that's maybe just a, a british overreaction as a player um my own personal experience and maybe you guys will disagree is you have a much better chance of winning when you're aggressive or offensive than when you're defensive or hiding in a corner mm. So um, the game, I think, naturally lends itself to running forward and seeing what you can do, um, which is uh, leading back to what you were saying about Sylvan Elves, why I think they're having such a hard time is so many lists are rushing forward. They're getting less shooting in. They're getting into combat faster and making them weaker. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yes, I, I, I wish that it was uh, more rank and file, uh, less monsters, less chariot stars, uh, but that does seem to be the trend that uh, has been developing for a while. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why the rules team is making a conscious effort to make uh, infantry 
stay relevant or even be more relevant. Oh, Pari's going to be hitting on fives, isn't it? <laughs> it's going to get worse. <laughs> yeah. The, the, one big, the one big difference I've seen between the U.S. tournaments and uh, European tournaments is there's a lot more team tournaments in yeah. uh, in Europe. And I, I actually wish there were more team tournaments here because now that I've actually been in one and I had so much fun, I wish there were more. Hmm. It does change fundamentally how the games are played, and uh, especially when you compare uh, something like a, a singles event, so something like the Scottish Championship. The lists that did well in the Scottish Championships would probably not be the same list that you would take to something like ETC, because you can't afford for your entire team to be playing in those all-or-nothing games. You've got to look for those kind of small win margins. And, you know, in the majority of team events, you're not looking for 20s. You're looking for kind of 13s. 13s, 14s are like solid wins. And that changes how you design lists and design, uh, changes how you play on the table as well. I think the meta is due for a shift. And I say that only because, um, not, not to give anything away, but, um, Vermin Swarm is about to be released and they are all about really crazy shooting and their shooting has always been especially effective against large single target limited wound models mm-hmm. um i think when the new vermin swarm book hits um just just stating this uh his, with a historical perspective i think that is going to going to cause a lot of uh, monsters to uh, run off the table and will be forced to move back to a little bit at least more infantry centric armies okay well that's interesting because one of the points we talked about was um, you know, the historic counter to those hyper-aggressive armies and, and single model armies is lots of shooting because it means that you can put a lot of pressure on them early on and it means that once they get to you, they're far more, you know, they're, they're softened up, you can deal with them far more easily. But that there aren't really a lot of really strong shooting armies just now. And we were suggesting that, in, you know, at the Scottish Championships, the Empire players all did well and that's maybe a reason for that. But the armies that are historically good at shooting are like Sylvan Elves, who aren't in a great place and can't really do enough in those early turns to really make a difference. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see once the Vermin Swarm book comes out, if shooting is their kind of area of, for, uh, you know, their area of strength, does that have quite big ramifications for the other army books? I see a lot of players fielding, um, at least Infernal Dwarf players, but other other armies as well, fielding maximum war machines just because the meta is big monsters and war machines are ideal for taking off uh, you know dragons and feldrax and other big scary things that run across the table and try and eat your face oh, I, can't remember, I can't remember the last time I played against the whole artillery park I saw uh, uh, what called, what's his name YouTuber from the States Berman's one player oh it's given easy oh, yeah, last bat rep uh, I don't know if anyone's seen it yet, but he's played an Ogres player at the last tournament that he was at, and he's got double cannon, double scrapple. Spicy. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, at least the, the, the Ogre War Machines can double up his chariots. Yeah, multi-purpose. for sure. They're, they're multi-purpose, and they're, you know, res 5 with 4 wounds, uh, 5 wounds with, like, good armor. So, like, they're less fragile than having a static, uh, you know, Three or four wind war machines, so I get it. Yeah, maybe things are changing. I mean, a lot of the Empire lists just now are running steam tank cannon. 
for that exact reason because you don't have to invest wholly in an artillery park but then you've still got two cannons that can be yeah and that's 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 supposed to be trials mo right dealing with monsters yeah i mean they've got lots of tools in that book to deal with monsters if they want to so maybe once that book's been doing the rounds a bit longer maybe that'll have an influence on the meta as well Mm -hmm. although i can't see the dread elves doing well on a heavy shooting meta i just don't think they've got enough enough bodies i guess it depends on the kind of shooting list because i mean they've got plenty of speed in the list as well you can literally push up and be like right one round shoot me off or i'm going to charge you yeah that book so i guess wait and see Mm, interesting maybe we're at a kind of a turning point this is where the the war against monsters swings <laughs> and it's just going to end up with like two artillery parks facing off across each other yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be playing empire next month <laughs> this is going to be this is going to be fun so what are the kind of what are the kind of armies that are doing well in the the, the u.s and just now because obviously um just now in, in the uk it's pretty mixed. There's there's no one army that's doing well, but if you had to pick out, like Beast Herds are having a massive resurgence thanks to Kev just smashing everyone in. Um, the Infernal Dwarves are, are definitely up there. Dread Elves are, are making waves as well. What's the kind of army composition in the States? I'm actually surprised that uh, uh, Beast Herds are as, are as popular as they are. And Kev, going back to his game, he, he played brilliantly. He had a big points lead. He could have just curled up in a corner and and uh, preserve points, but he went right after it in that game and said, "Come at me, bro!" and and smashed face. He did a great game, and I I I think um, just so many people tuned into that game. I can see why there's a a, a big appeal with uh, with beast herds, even though I don't think they're like a, a particularly great army. They're 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 fun, but I I don't see the the big appeal to them other than. I saw Kevin's game and I was like, wow, that looked so fun. Uh, and I don't know why, because, you know, some people still call them brown orcs. Beast Herds confirmed. Beast Herds confirmed for next time. <laughs> it's, I, I find it really interesting how different kind of areas have different attitudes towards army books. Like, even just like the Beast, because like Beast Herds in the UK are commonly accepted as just a really strong book because they, they you know, they're awesome in combat. Yes, they, they you know, they're, they're pretty naked, uh, but they're awesome in combat. They really compete well for objectives. There was a point where if you were playing against Beast Herds, you were losing secondary, unless it was hold the center. There wasn't really anything else that was an issue for them. Um, sure. and even, even going back to things like, uh, uh, in the UK, um, Saurians used to be, all the rage a few years ago and then talking to people in, in France and Germany and they're like why are you guys playing Saurians they're absolutely dog shit like how are they winning events <laughs> I just find it really interesting that these, you know we're all playing the same game right but it seems that actually we're not <laughs> in some areas I guess that speaks to a lot of the as we were talking about earlier like when you're reading the forums like it's probably something that people don't really consider is where people are playing and how much of a difference that probably has or an effect that has on their opinion of what's strong and what's not. Yeah. Do you think that's changing with more online games as well? Something like UB where you've got more kind of players from from different places playing against each other. Do you think that's having an impact? Uh, I guess so. I guess it, ultimately it is going to expose people to different style lists. I remember like the first time I played a random person on UB 
he played uh, Undying Dynasties and albeit said that's a book I don't have a lot of experience against generally I remember looking at his list and being like this list is garbage like <laughs> what is this and then he fucking twentyed me and I was like I don't I don't even understand how this has happened <laughs> So yeah, I think it does. Even if it if it's only changing opinions fairly slowly, I think it's definitely inevitable. What about you, Graham? Have you managed to get many games in on UB? Are you a fan? Um, I, I I suitably despise UB, <laughs> but because of COVID, um, I have to credit them with probably single-handedly saving miniature gaming because. I think the community would have dried up and drifted away if people had not been able to play games. Mm. So yeah, the ability to play people from different parts of the world. I mean, my local meta is very different from what I'm playing on UB because in UB, there's a much better chance I'm going to play armies that people here just don't own. I mean, the US meta is really heavy with um, with uh, ogres and warriors and uh, knights of Equitaine, anything uh, the elves, anything that uh, runs in, smashes face, uh, especially if it has high armor, um, you know, wipe out the army or wipe out the enemy and uh, by swinging first. And if there's no one left to swing back, then you kind of win by default. Is really popular here. So what are the kind of like the big three then? Ogres, warriors. Uh, what else? Definitely warriors, hands down warriors. Uh, Infernal dwarfs are becoming a little more popular, but okay. I still don't think a lot of people uh, own the armies, so yeah. they're not hugely popular. And dread elves have always been um, a, a bit of a fanboy army. I, you know, a ton of people own those, mm. um, so I'm seeing more of those now that their new book is out. But um, yeah, warriors definitely. Uh, Equitaine has always been popular. I mean, how can you not like the appeal of knights riding around in shining armies, in, in shining armor, uh, doing quests, uh, fighting for the Grail and and oaths and damsels and all that kind of good stuff. You play Kingdom of Equitaine for the peasants. You don't play for the knights. Come on. <laughs> I, oh, wonder, really? I wonder how much that speaks <laughs> to the difference in mentality between, you know, North Americans and Europeans. Because <laughs> Europeans, we're fucking drowning in this shit. Like, fucking, there's castles every other fucking place. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, this is stuff that you get spoon-fed as a child. Maybe our people here are just over it. Because I feel like KOE isn't that popular here. No. I mean, really? On, yeah. On yeah. The scene, there's maybe what? There's Ed who gets them out occasionally. And yeah. there's Peter Bedson. That's it. I can't think of one. Oh, Wes Wheeler. Uh, he plays Kingdom of Team. Yeah. But that's really it. You'll occasionally uh, see someone like pick them up for a tournament, but... Yeah, really Tanker will take them because he'll, he'll do this Tanker thing and be like, I'm just going to take five <laughs> units. I'm going to take units of five. Like, what, what can I do? What books will let me take units of five <laughs> if I spam it and do well? <laughs> Either units of five knights or chariots. He'll take it. So yeah, Tanker might, but yeah, he does it with everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, that's a good point actually. Like they're really, maybe that's why we have such a negative impression of Koe, but they're very unpopular. That's oh, sorry, uh, David Post, Dav. Of course, he takes them. Yeah, yeah, he's another one. But yeah, so I mean, are they are they super popular in the states then? They're well, they're pretty popular. I think if for no other reason, uh, they're a low model count army. Yeah. So for uh, people who are unfortunate enough to have not invested in a 3D printer, 
you can buy an army um, without spending a whole lot of cash, and you get a yeah, you know, a, a beautiful. They're one of the most beautiful armies when they're painted, um, but they're also really fun. Quite a high skill level for painting, I feel as well. Like I feel that must put certain people off because when you see them done well, like they look fantastic. But like, if you're used to just you know dipping your models, KOE probably isn't the army that you want to. <laughs> Go with. <laughs> Unless you're going for a very specific aesthetic. Dirty nights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I that's, suppose that's true. Yeah, that, that, that's just really interesting. Because um, they're definitely not one of the big heroes here. But who knows? Maybe that'll change. Yeah, with a new book. Yeah. Ooh, exciting. One of the discussions I followed most closely on the uh, on the uh, Equitane book was, and one of their, their first discussions they ever had was, what should we do with the lance formation? Do we keep it? Do we change it? Do we scrap it? And, uh, you know, they, they talked about uh, changing it to maybe impact hits or just lots of fighting in extra ranks, but not requiring three wide. Um, you know, all kinds of really creative things. They had about 10 different things that they talked about. And um, I think what they finally decided on will um, make the make the forums very happy is this exclusive reveal number four <laughs> it, it could be <gasps> hmm. so that suggests that they're not keeping the lance so they've changed it if that's what you want to read into that it could be, it could be <laughs> right. god damn it <laughs> I was wondering what, how he was going to reply god damn it yeah. when he paused I thought I might have him here yeah no. he's stumbling he's stumbling <laughs> oh no <laughs> So tune in next week when we have a full reveal of the Kingdom Act Ten book. Yeah, we're going to yeah. talk about three hours just on the land formation. You'll have to have uh, Ed on your, one of your episodes so that he can keep saying, "Stupid Grim, he did not say that. That's not true." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, exciting stuff. Well, um, Paul, do you have anything else you want to have a chat? No, about that was that was great. Out? That was really interesting. Uh, it's getting lighter and lighter where you are Grim I'm very conscious of the fact that you'll, you'll have a whole other day of things to do so we won't keep you much longer <laughs> well this has been really fun thank you very much for having me on no, no sorry uh, sorry it was it's taken us so long because we wanted to do this for a while but it's uh, it's been good it's been really interesting absolutely well I you have a, a long list of people I'm sure who are uh, sending you um, checks and bribes and uh, whatever they can to get get into the chair so i i totally understand it's mostly just dick pics if i'm completely honest yeah and it's mainly just michael being like Can I come on <laughs> <again?"> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah our fan mail is actually really depressing yeah it's uh, one guy who's a farmer down in england yeah oh yeah and even he's talked off like, i know right tommy tucker where are you um yeah, well, massive thank you for uh, spending the time this morning, Grim. Um, pleasure talking to you. And please do, um, if you want to come on again, just give us a shout because we'd be more than happy to have you. Um, in terms of wrapping up and shout outs and things like that, Grim, have you got any shout outs that you want to give? No, I don't uh, like anyone. Um, <laughs> yes, but um, I mean, really, it, I, the community is amazing that supports us, but mostly to our volunteers who pour endless numbers of hours into a hobby totally for free um purely out of a um out of their own passion for the game 
um, to produce something amazing that we all really enjoy. We wouldn't be anywhere without them. So if, if anyone deserves a shout out, it's gotta be them. Just everybody who wears that badge. Here, here. Well, if you have any questions for the podcast or you've got any topics that you want us to discuss, you can get in contact through a variety of means. You can grab us on the forum. I am Lost Cause. Paul is Space Goblin. Grim is the one and only Grimble Black Hammer. Um, and you can also drop us an email at scottishwildlands at gmail.com or you can grab us on Twitter at Scottish Thinkage. I am MGR Lost Cause. And Paul is Space Goblin 1. And uh, all that's left for me to do is thank Grim once more for coming on. Thank you, Paul, for putting up all the shit. And we will catch you all in the next one. See you later. See ya. Thank you, Brandon.